Well, as I've mentioned a couple of times already, our text this morning is from John chapter 11. So if you have a Bible in front of you, and I hope that you do, uh, you can flip there or click there or however you want to get there. I'll invite you to get to John chapter 11. In these verses, we're going to deal with most of the chapter this morning. Uh, we're going to be introduced to Mary and Martha and their brother Lazarus. And we're going to find out that Lazarus is sick. Not just a little bit sick, but really sick. And he actually dies early in the chapter. And now, Mary and Martha, in the midst of the illness and sickness of their brother, they think they've got a really great plan to deal with it. Now, I want you to take a minute and just think of a time where you thought you had a great plan, but things just didn't work out. I suspect none of us will have to look back too far to, to dig up some of these times where things didn't go as planned. Uh, maybe it's as simple as, you know, there's this evening I planned a, a special dinner or a special dessert, and instead of pulling off this, this great meal, the smoke alarms went off and I got to meet the local firefighters. Maybe it's something a little bit bigger, like I plan to finish high school and go to this school and get into this program, but it didn't work out or it didn't stick, or I had to drop out. Without question, we all have examples of things that we'd planned over the last year, or year and a bit, that just weren't or aren't going to be as we'd hoped. Vacations, birthdays, anniversaries, weddings, funerals, graduations, park days, beach days, all the things. We all know the list. When our plans don't work out, or our plans fail, or our plans wind up in disaster, it so often leaves us with just a, a mixed bag of emotions, doesn't it? I, I know I can look back on, on my life and see some of my best laid plans, best made plans that didn't turn out, and, and I can remember feeling a, a number of things. Uh, and any or all of the emotions of, of just being angry or upset or maybe betrayed and hurt, alone, lonely, mad at myself, disappointed, disillusioned, depressed even maybe, or maybe just plain mad at God. Now Mary and Martha, as I said, they had a great plan. And they're going to send word to Jesus that their brother is sick. And since they have a close relationship with Jesus, since Jesus loves them and is, is tied close to their family, they figure he's going to come and he's going to heal Lazarus and everything's going to be great. They, they know Jesus can do this. They know it isn't out of the realm of possibility that Jesus could do this. They'd definitely heard the stories. They'd potentially even witness some of the things Jesus had done, his healings, his miracles, his signs and wonders. If not, they, if they're close as, as family and friends, either Jesus or maybe not Jesus, but his disciples recounted them, hey, today we saw him do this. I, I kind of envisioned Jesus being a little more humble about the whole thing and the disciples maybe bragging about what he did, but Jesus just being like, listen, I'm just doing what the Father asked. Mary and Martha, they lived close to Jerusalem as well, so they had probably, probably heard of, definitely heard of, we could say, maybe even seen the man who was born blind but now had sight from just a couple of chapters ago. But here, Jesus doesn't heal Lazarus' sickness, and he dies. I imagine, and I suspect you can imagine, that this throws Mary and Martha for quite a loop. 
I'm sure they have all sorts of questions for Jesus. And then when he does arrive at their place, Lazarus has already been in the grave for for four days, which is a significant amount of time. And Mary and Martha have this opportunity to come face to face with Jesus, with the one they expected to come through for them, but seemingly didn't. I don't know about you, but there's been times in my life where where I kind of wished I had that opportunity to be kind of face-to-face with Jesus. And I I know I can go away and I can spend time and the Holy Spirit can speak and say, here's what I was doing in this moment and here's how I was actually working, even though you didn't see me. But boy, would it be nice sometimes to just be face-to-face with Jesus and just in the midst of grief and pain, look him in the eyes and say, where were you in this? But here's where John's going to take us this morning. He's going to show us the difference that Jesus can make in our experience of death, even of death, if we believe in him. Now, in the midst of Mary and Martha's seemingly failed plan, and in the midst of of Mary and Martha's very real pain, Jesus is about to show them that he has so much more in store for them than they expect As we've seen so many times already in John's gospel, Jesus doesn't act the way the people around him expect that he should. Instead, he does what he wants, which he continually tells us is the will of God. He's come to do what God sent him to do. He does what he hears the Father saying he should do. He does what the Father is already up to. And he does this because Jesus knows that's what's best. Not what the people expect out of him, but what he's doing is best. And as he does this, even in this case with Mary and Martha, he calls them to believe in him. And when they do, they end up experiencing something they never would have dreamed possible. And really, that's, that's the big idea for us this morning. When we learn to believe in Jesus, we will experience the victory of life over even death. Let me start reading for us. John 11, verses 1 and 2. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, in the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who had anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. And so the sisters, here's their plan, sent to Jesus saying, Lord, the one that you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It's for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Again, here's here's the plan. They send word to Jesus that their brother, the one you love, don't forget Jesus, you love him. You probably don't even, maybe don't even know these other guys that you've healed, but you love this one. He's sick. He's dying. And they know what Jesus can do. They know that Lazarus is a close friend, so they expect Jesus to come and fix the situation they find themselves in. Again, I'm not sure about you, but I have to confess that I uh, often, or maybe more often than I'd like to admit, sort of approach Jesus in the same way. Jesus, here's my problem, and here's what you should do about it. Go. Now, admittedly, maybe this is a bit of an oversimplification of of Mary and Martha in their grief and their experience here, but they know that their brother is sick and it doesn't look good. And if we follow the timeline over the next few verses, we can probably see that, that Lazarus had probably 
died even before the message got to Jesus. So this was imminent. And no question, the sisters are worried. They're panicked about the decline in their brother's health and, and if their brother dies, what that means for them. And so Jesus' response is actually quite surprising. First of all, he says, as we read, this illness won't end in death. We find out in verse 14 that Lazarus actually died. Jesus get it wrong? What's happening here? And then, even though the messenger seems to have come and there's, there's urgency and immediacy in the message that he gets from the sisters, Jesus stays two days longer before going to visit. Why would he do this? It doesn't seem to make sense, does it? If, if Jesus really loved Lazarus and really loved Mary and Martha, why wouldn't he drop everything and go? Why not do for them exactly what they asked? He's sick, I'll heal him. As the messenger came, as soon as he got word, Jesus could have spoken a word and Lazarus could have been better. We've seen him do that already. Why would Jesus act this way? Well, he gives us a reason in verse 4 there. And it's actually the same reason we heard back at the beginning of chapter 9 with the blind man. That this is all about the glory of God. This isn't me being petty or waiting or, or forcing Lazarus to experience something, but this is going to happen and God will be glorified. And more than that, so that the Son of God, so Jesus himself could be glorified through it. See, Jesus taking extra time uh, before he goes to visit and, and showing up when he did isn't just some weird flex for the crowd to show them just how great he is. Well, I guess it's kind of that, but it's not just a power trip. Instead, this is going to be a moment when the power and the greatness of God are on display, but even more than that, it's going to be a defining moment in Jesus' public ministry. Back in chapter 9, we saw Jesus give sight to the blind man. And that was something no one had ever seen before. We saw the people kind of wrestle with this as he couldn't have actually been blind because blind people don't see again. And there was something that was so remarkable, a blind man having sight again, that, that it made Jesus stand head and shoulders above any of the other so-called faith healers of the day. And God got the glory from that. People said, who else could do this but God himself? How much more glory might come from Jesus raising someone from the dead? And not just a little bit dead, four days dead. Well past the time of the, the belief of the day where it was said that the, the spirit of that person sort of hovered around their body for about three days just in case they woke up and the spirit would go back in them and they'd be them again. But at four days, it was over. There's purpose in the waiting. There's a point to what Jesus is doing. Again, time and time again, we've also seen Jesus go over and above what the people expected of him. So often, so far in the gospel, we've seen people put expectations on Jesus of who he is and, and what he's supposed to do, yet their thinking is just so small. They think he's come to be the king of Israel, but he's ushering in the kingdom of God. And he's demonstrating that he is God. And he's demonstrating the glory of God and the fulfillment of the whole Old Testament. And all those promises are coming true in him. 
which brings us back to our own hurts and disappointments. The times where we have said, where were you, God? Now, how many of those times that you can think of in your own life have you been able to, to look back when you're removed from a little bit of time and see that God was up to something that you just didn't anticipate, that you couldn't see in the moment? Or how many times have you been able to look back on, on trials or troubles or struggles or, or, or consequences or all these things and see that God was actually using that thing or, or was able to use that thing to grow something in you that wouldn't have been there if you didn't have to go through that thing? How many times can you look back and see that God was actually doing something to make his name great, not your name great? Now, I, I know that this doesn't happen every time. I know that we can't look back at every incident in our life yet and see, that, see what was going on. And there are lots of things that we won't be able to look back and see how God was able to use it or what God was doing until we pass on from this life and have an eternal perspective. But hopefully, that we're, we're all learning to look at life through this lens. How is God being glorified through me today? Jesus, I don't see it. I don't get it. But I trust you. And I hope that you'll use whatever this is for your glory. Remember, sometimes we just won't see that in the moment. And maybe not for a long, long time. And so we have to resist the temptation to to feel that Jesus has abandoned us. Or to feel like Jesus has decided we're not good enough for him. Or he doesn't want to help. Or feel that Jesus is just powerless to do what we want him to do in our situation. Now, I suspect as we read this text and read these verses, the sisters felt hurt. I suspect the disciples felt like Jesus wasn't doing what he was supposed to do. Sometimes I feel like Jesus is is far away and maybe doesn't even really like me or care about me. But the thing about feelings is they cannot be trusted. Jeremiah 17, 9 is one of several places in the Bible that tells us this. And the prophet writes, The heart is deceitful above all things. Our feelings are the problem. The heart is desperately sick. Who can understand it? We can't trust just our feelings. We need to trust the truth. We need to trust the one who is truth, Jesus. And here, even though it doesn't seem to make sense that Jesus waits, he says, this situation is for the glory of God and so that the Son of God might be glorified through it. We get to verse 7 and Jesus decides now it's time to go. Let's go to Lazarus. Now, we read that Lazarus is from Bethany. It's only a couple of miles from Jerusalem. So the disciples feel like they need to remind Jesus of the last time they were in Jerusalem, from just last chapter in chapter 10, where the religious leaders tried to not only arrest Jesus, but actually picked up stones to try to kill him, to stone him right there. And the disciples feel they need to remind him of this because maybe Jesus forgot. I love this about the disciples. They sometimes just don't realize who they're with. But Jesus says, listen, it's okay. I've got this. 
It's still daytime. It's still my time. My hour hasn't yet come. We're going to be okay. And then in verse 11, he tells them, listen, Lazarus has fallen asleep. I need to go so I can go and wake him. The disciples are, are pleased with this news that Lazarus is only sleeping. Maybe the rest will do him some good. But a couple of verses down, Jesus clarifies and says, he's dead. And for your sake, I'm glad I wasn't there so that you may believe. Let's go to him. This is really the, the key of all of the gospel, right? So that you may believe. John's just loaded with this type of statement. Now, why does Jesus call death sleep? Right? He said, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. The disciples think, great, he's resting, his body will heal. And he says, no, you guys have missed it. He's fallen asleep, he's dead. Uh, one commentator helpfully notes this for us. Jesus is showing the disciples a distinctly different perspective on death. The disciples, they fear death. They see death as the ultimate winner. It's why they don't want to go to Judea. We fear death too, don't we? But Jesus sees death much differently. Death is no worse than sleep, and there's no reason to fear sleep. See, here's why Jesus says he's, he's glad he waited for Lazarus to die, which is a bit of an odd statement, but hear me out. It's not because he didn't like Lazarus. We're told that he loved Lazarus. Instead, it's because Jesus knows he's about to go and show everyone that death itself is powerless before Jesus. Death itself is powerless before Jesus. With a word, he can go and he can wake Lazarus up. And in the same way, Jesus is foreshadowing his own resurrection. Finally then, in verse 16, Thomas perhaps reluctantly says, okay, well, let's go and die with Jesus in Jerusalem. Now Thomas, he often gets a bad rap, being known as the, the doubting Thomas, Thomas, not Thomas at the back of the room here. He, he always gets a good rap. But Thomas in the gospel often gets a bad rap for being doubting Thomas. That's how we usually remember him right from the end of the gospels where he says, unless I put my fingers in the wounds and then touch his side, I won't believe that Jesus has come back from the dead. But maybe, just maybe, Thomas is being logical. It did not make sense that anyone would raise themselves back to life from the dead. And so he's just thinking, listen, this is crazy, you guys, unless I, I need some proof myself. And so here, similarly, uh, let's call him Logical Thomas, says, well, you know what, if we're headed back to where you were just about to be killed not that long ago, okay, let's go and we'll go and we'll die with you too. Well, so far we've talked about Mary and Martha's plan, how they had sent for Jesus and he didn't respond the way that they thought he should, but he said that this, is, this plan was to, to bring glory to God's name and what I'm going to do. In the next section here, we see how, how first Martha and then Mary in their pain. Remember, they've lost their brother, which had, again, significant social and financial ramifications in the first century. And it seemed like Jesus either didn't care or, or wasn't able to help or, or was just late. He just got hung up. And we read that Jesus arrives in Bethany. Lazarus had been in the tomb for four days. Now, Jesus' timing isn't an accident. 
It's never an accident. After four days, there's no doubt that the man is dead. There's been enough time for, for the crowds to gather to help support uh, Mary and Martha, the crowd of, of mourners to be there, as well as the professional mourners that would have come out to, to mourn with them as well, which was a thing in the first century. There were plenty of people around, plenty of witnesses around to what was just about to happen. But Before Jesus gets to the house, Martha hears he's on his way and she runs out to meet him. As we read these words, we can hear her grief and and probably her confusion just kind of dripping off of her words. Look at verse 21. She says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Verse 22. Even now, I know whatever you ask from God, he will give it to you. I think you can, you can hear the disappointment and misunderstanding and confusion dripping off those words in verse 21, and yet she still expresses faith in Jesus. She still calls him the Christ. She doesn't understand all of what that might mean, maybe, but he, she expresses a faith in him, knowing that whatever he wants to do, he will do, and maybe, just maybe, he can, we can still bend his will to ours. And Jesus responds with a simple yet profound statement to her. Because your brother will rise. Now Martha knew the Old Testament. We see that in her words here. She understood that, that this life isn't all that there is and that someday God would raise everyone from the dead. But Jesus is talking about something even greater here. Look at verse 25. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Look at what Jesus says to her. She says, even now I know what, whatever you want, God will do for you. And I, I suspect maybe you've got some power that, that we don't have and, and you can still make something happen here. And Jesus doesn't say, listen, I've got the strength. Let me flex. I'll resurrect him. He doesn't say, I can do this, but he says, I am the resurrection. And he doesn't say that I can give Lazarus life again, but he says, I am life. These are our massive statements, again, tied to the divine name of God. See, here's the thing. As as Christians, as followers of Jesus, our hope isn't just in an event, the resurrection, but it's in a person. Our hope is in Jesus. And Jesus doesn't just give life, but he is life. As one writer says, you and I, we have life, but Jesus is life. You and I, we can, we can lose our life, but he cannot and will not lose his life. He laid his life down, but the resurrection was proof that death could not take life from him. If that's who we follow, How does that affect the way you and I experience everything in our life, but especially death? How does Jesus first laying his life down for you and for me change the way we look at death as we head towards it as well? And then even beyond that, how does the resurrection take that understanding of life and death even further? Again, this is the whole big idea of this morning. When we learn to believe Jesus, we will experience victory of life over death itself. 
and what Jesus is about to do for Lazarus, this seals his promise for all of us. He just doesn't throw words out that says, well, I'm the resurrection, I'm the life, watch this. He promises it. And he says, if we believe him, even if we see physical death, which we all will, unless he comes back first, we will live on forever with him. And this, I think, has profound implications for how we should live now. I've heard it said, you know, we're immortal till God calls us home. If our, our physical death is just a gateway to eternal life, why should we fear death? Of course, we shouldn't be careless with our lives. We shouldn't throw them away just to test Jesus in this. But if we believe what Jesus says, that death is just a transition into being with God forever, how does that change our view of death? That's really the Christian hope. That this life is not all that there is. That one day, everything, everything sad will come untrue. That one day, Jesus will wipe the tears from every eye and there will be no more sickness, no more pain. The Christian hope is that God loved the world in this way, that he sent his one and only son, Jesus, to conquer death on our behalf so that whoever believes in him will never have to face death on our own. Martha then goes to get Mary, who comes out and meets Jesus and says virtually the same thing to her, to, to Jesus. If you were only here. In the time between where they sent the messenger to Jesus and, and now when Jesus is back, how many times do you think those sisters said those words to each other? If Jesus was only here. If Jesus was only here. If Jesus was only here. And now he's there and they say, if you were only here. It's beautiful that even though Jesus knows what he's going to do, we read that he is deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Here's a message for all of us. Jesus entered into their suffering, even knowing what he was about to do moments later. He felt their pain. He identified with them in their grief. He didn't say, buck up, let's go. Watch this. He was deeply moved. See, that's what we're supposed to do as Jesus' followers too. Paul writes in Romans 12, we weep with those who weep. And boy, do we have reasons to weep these days. I also think it's, it's hugely significant that we have that verse, John eleven thirty five, where we read that Jesus wept. Because so often, and maybe you can identify with this too, the, the picture we're given of Jesus, whether it's through, I don't know, Sunday school or maybe some teaching or some, some videos, the old Jesus film or whatever else, we picture Jesus as a sort of stoic, unemotional, walking, talking teacher that sounds more like a robot than anybody I'd actually want to hang out with. That picture's not Jesus. Jesus loved this family. He wept with them in their grief, even though he knew that that grief wouldn't last for long. I love that about Jesus, that he knows what we've gone through. He knows what we are going through, and he knows what we will go through, and he enters that with us. The writer of Hebrews puts it this way. He says, we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness. 
Jesus knows. And so often I, I, I struggle to do this, to, to sympathize with others, to enter into the grief and pain of other people. I maybe try to offer some comfort and, and, but kind of keep people at arm's length to, to pray with and for people. But I need to get better at, at listening, at sitting with people in their grief and their burdens and their pain and their brokenness and the effects that sin has had on their lives. That's what Jesus did here. He entered into their grief, but then he did something about it as only he can. We see as well that the watching crowds wonder why Jesus hadn't come to save Lazarus. They point back to chapter 9 as well and said, listen, if he opened the eyes of the blind man, surely he could have healed Lazarus. But we're about to see that they're incredibly right. Verse 38. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, Take away the stone. And Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead for four days. She's thinking with what she can see in front of her and what's normal to her. Also logical like Thomas, I guess. Jesus turns and said to her, Didn't I tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God. And they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they might believe you sent me. I love that we have this little window into Jesus' prayer life as well. And then in verse 43, when he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. Can you imagine being in the crowd that was gathered there? There would have been family and friends and probably lots of people in Bethany and then the, the people they knew from Jerusalem, the mourners came out and the, the professional mourners came out and there would have been a lot of people there and they're saying, Lazarus, do what? Verse 44. The man who died came out. His hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come to be with Mary, who had seen what he did, believed in him. Whew. Why did Jesus let Mary and Martha and the others experience four days of grief? I think at least in large part, it's because he's doing things that you and I and, and they didn't know or didn't understand. He's got ways that are above our ways, plans that are above our plans. And so even if and, and even when we find ourselves not understanding what Jesus is up to, we can never stop believing that he loves us, that he is working for us, and he's working for us to experience his glory, and that he's calling us for what? to believe in him. See, when Lazarus walked out of that tomb, it wasn't just about ending the grieving of a couple of friends, but it was a demonstration and a declaration of power over death itself. And that's, that's the big idea here. 
When we learn to believe in Jesus, we will experience the victory of life over death, the power uh, that Jesus has over even death itself. Now, if the people were amazed at Jesus giving sight to a blind man a couple of chapters ago, how much more would have this rocked their world? And it should rock our worlds too. This shouldn't be something that we read and say, okay, somehow they conjured something up 2,000 years ago. The people didn't believe this, right? This could not have happened. You're right. It could not have happened unless Jesus is God. Mary and Martha just watched their friend, Jesus, who they understood, we saw in verse 28, they understood that Jesus was the Christ and the Son of God coming into the world. They watched him bring their brother out of the grave with three words. Lazarus, come out. Now, if Jesus had come right away when they called him, or if Jesus had got the message and healed Lazarus as a dis- at a distance like he'd done before, we read about that earlier in John's Gospel, right? This showdown with death never would have happened. This, of course, was never a fair fight because Jesus is the resurrection and Jesus is life. And so death doesn't stand a chance. What these verses, what this passage is really setting us up for is another resurrection. One that comes about 10 chapters later. I encourage you to read forward there. In these verses, we see Lazarus hobbled out, still wrapped in all his clothes. He would have had his feet tied together, his arms beside him, so he probably hopped like a, I don't know what, but hopped out. But in that next resurrection, we're going to find the grave clothes left behind and neatly folded. So here's where we're at. Up until this point in history, death had always won. It always got the last word. But not anymore. If if we believe in Jesus, we don't need to fear death because Jesus not only faced death in our place, but he's also defeated death in order to bring us life. Let me pray. Jesus, how how do you say more than thank you for this? Thank you for the text this morning, your word that has been preserved for us and brought down to us for generation and generation, that we can can read these words now and and see what you did all those years ago to, to, to defeat death. I pray, Jesus, that when we go into times where we, we've asked you for something and it seems like you're not listening or you're not there or you don't care or you can't do anything about whatever we're bringing to you, help us to, to cling to the truth that you are the resurrection and you are life. Help us to resist the temptation to, to, to trust in our emotions that, that will often, if not always, spiral down the path of saying, well, Jesus doesn't really care and can't do anything and he doesn't love me. Forgive us for those times. Help us to to cling to you as truth. Jesus, thank you again for this word that reminds us that you have defeated death and you did so with a word. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Bev and team are going to lead us in a couple of closing songs. The first one is, I am the resurrection.